gentlemen, welcome to the Tom, Dick and Hyman show with myself, Tom. Oh yeah, I'm here. I'm still here. Who are I you? Didn't, I didn't run away. I'm still here. Who are you? Oh, I'm Hyman. Yes, of course, Hyman. On today's Brexit, we review... <laughs> <laughs> we review a film that came out in cinemas, I think, back in March. Yep, I saw it at a film festival. Yeah, because... Today's episode is all about high courts, high rises, and closed opinions. Oh shit, we didn't say the name of the film. Yep, that's right, we're reviewing high rise. And high courts. But before we talk about the high court Brexit ruling, we're going to be asking the question, what is victimhood culture? Hey, hey, say it to my face, not my boobs. I am a victim of your apathy towards being funny in this podcast. I hear your apathy, (laughs) and I validate it. Yep, but... Like I said, we're going to start off talking about the court ruling on Brexit, and it seems it's the Brexiteers' turn to play the victim. Uh, the Brexiteers, the much better book by Alexander Dumas, <laughs> The Three Musketeers. <laughs> and of course, the fact I don't read novel, that's going to come into play when it comes to reviewing High Rise, because it's based on a novel I haven't read. By J.G. Ballard. Or Ballard. Blood. Yeah, blood. Blood. Yeah, blood. But Hyman, Brexiteers, are we sore winners? Are we the bad guys? Well, we do have uh, skulls on our emblems. (laughs) No, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) What do I know? I'm the one that doesn't know. Huge day, of course, for the UK. So there's kind of perfect timing. Court ruling that in order to continue with the Brexit process, Theresa May has to uh, get a vote from Parliament that the referendum itself is not enough. Could it change the, you know, I don't see too many people thinking that it could actually prevent the triggering of Article 50, but could it change, say, the complexion of the negotiations in some way? Yeah, well, it could, Joe. Uh, in fact, yeah, actually, shut up, old man. All right. Hey, leave Granddad alone. I was looking forever for a clip, just like a headline clip of someone reading out, uh, in today's news, Brexit setback due to dramatic court ruling, you know, something like that. And this was all I could find was an American trying to explain Brexit to Americans. It's old news and uh, everyone's ashamed of it. So it's all downplayed. Well, nothing is really happening. And we, we don't live in a time where we can accept that nothing's happening right now, but something might happen in the future. We don't, we can't handle that idea. It's like, no, 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 no. We have to know now. Was this the right decision or the wrong decision? I need to know now. And if not, just don't tell us at all. Like I say, Brexiteers, we're not we're not the best of winners, really, are we? We are a bit we are a bit sore losery. See, that's it. I don't think we're Brexiteers. We're Brexonauts. We're leading into the future. We're blasting. We're, we're saying fuck this shit. We're blasting off into space. We're running from our decision. Guernsey, we have a problem. So last Thursday. After a campaign led by hedge fund manager Gina Miller, the UK's High Court ruled that Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty cannot be triggered without Parliament voting on it first. What is this Lisbon Treaty? Lisbon Treaty is, um, I think some Irish dude wrote it, maybe some Scottish guy, and it's basically, hypothetically, if for some odd reason someone might want to leave the European Union, there has to be some sort of protocol on how you go about that. So we heard from the plebs. Let's hear from the people that actually rule us. Well, I, I'm pretty sure there was... Uh, I saw a news clip 
just about maybe a month or two before the referendum and it was the guy who wrote article 50 yeah and he was explaining well look even if there is a brexit vote technically it's still possible that brexit won't happen even if article 50 is triggered you could still have the negotiation period where negotiations fall apart and then we just don't we just end up not leaving it triggered some brexiteers they were very, very upset about it, and they started. Uh, they started lambasting the three judges who made the ruling. Um, I think the Daily Mail. Mm-hmm. I think they declared them enemies of the yeah enemies of the people. That kind of rhetoric. Yeah, when you go back to uh, the early beginnings of like fascism and communism, you know, totalitarianism. Everybody wear black shirt in protest. But you'll find that quote from every awful dictator tyrant. Oh, you know history. what? It, you know what it is. The enemies it, of the people must be stopped. Every time I see something like that, all I think is someone has bought that newspaper because the sun. We won it for someone. You know, you never heard that saying. You know, like the sun. We won it. Well, that was the the kind of they got that reputation of oh, they always back the right horse when it came to general elections. Yeah, is that what no, you mean? No, but I'm saying like it always feels like. Each newspaper is bought off by a different party or a different political yeah, group. But and every time mm. I see, like, they're enemies of the state, you're going like, well, you're not actually a newspaper. You're a propaganda voice. Yeah, like, like I say, if you go back, you'll see all the brutal dictators and tyrants who enacted mass famines and buried people in mass graves. You'll find that quote from all of them. But you'll probably find it from people who are a little bit more benevolent as well. They probably talk about, you know, because everything, and we're going to talk about this later with victimhood culture, everything's framed as oppressor versus oppressed. And you're always going to call the oppressors the enemies of the people, the enemies of democracy. Do you know what I mean? Everyone speaks in that kind of exaggerated way. I like the idea of a dictator going like, we'll start off small with local things and we'll just send (laughs) military in and every time someone's about to eat something, we just smack it out of their hands. Yeah. Petty. Petty, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But the Daily Express was highly melodramatic. They they howled in agony that this is the day democracy died. Not yet is my response to that. Maybe, possibly, there is a potential... British democracy could die as a result of the uh, more over the Brexit vote itself than anything else. <laughs> I mean, we're pretty much dead anyway. If we leave or if we go, we're mm. fucked. Maybe. <laughs> and the problem, see, is, um, we, the problem is we made a, made a stance, be it good or be it bad, and no one in politics likes that. Taking risks. Global politics is even worse. Politics is about taking a risk and also compromise. The two go hand in hand in my book. Mm. But this uh, Gina Miller the head fund manager who started off this campaign, she's the one who basically hired a lawyer and built the case. And The Sun, they got accused of doing, my favourite topic here that I get to reference, the OJ Simpson trial. Do you remember when, um, <laughs> I think it was Time magazine, darkened OJ's skin in a photo? They darkened, they turned down the contrast on the photo to make OJ oh, look basically Taylor. blacker. Oh, But this, uh, The Sun was accused of doing the same thing with Gina Miller because she's born in Guyana, I think. Was born in Guyana. Yeah. And then... Um, they were accused of blackening the photo or okay. darkening it up. But what actually transpired is the Times turned the contrast on the photo up to make her appear really more pale skinned. And the sun actually didn't doctor the photo at all. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah. I thought I'd mention that because I bet you most people that know about the whole, oh, the sun, oh my God, did you see they darkened the photo? They probably don't know that actually the Times lightened the photo and someone mistook it for the sun darkening. But the thing about Gina Miller... What does that say about us? That we're, we're copying American culture, basically. Yeah. Whatever America does, we copy them. But the thing about Gina Miller, a lot of people are attacking her, including Nigel Farage. And I think, uh, think St. Farage is wrong on this one. Nothing she's done is against the law. 
It's not really unethical. She found... A loophole. She found a technicality, yeah. Yeah. Her argument in the court case was, if Theresa May, the Prime Minister, triggers Article 50 and we leave the EU, that means we would lose our right to vote in the European Parliament elections. Mm. So technically, a British citizen, a British Queen, subject of the Queen, if you will, any time Parliament or any member of the establishment or what have you wants to take someone's rights away, yeah, it has to be done as a, I think it has to be done as an act of parliament. Like you have to vote on a bill in parliament in order to do it. The prime minister can't just do it unilaterally. Yeah. So she's got the government over the barrel. The the government's going to appeal this decision. They uh, they're hoping the decision comes out by like early mid December. So because you know their timetable is to trigger Brexit by March. Really? Yeah, March next year. Trigger Article Fifty by next year. But this is obviously, I think this is quite clearly going to push that back a bit. As I, uh, I said before, I think it was two episodes. I said there is a case that Parliament should have a vote on it. And my reasoning was, we didn't get the ideal EU referendum where you had a multiple choice of what type of leave do you want? Like uh, EEA membership, EFTA membership, something like that. And then like a final option of just, I fucking hate Europe, I just want out. Which probably (laughs) would have won. Which you just perforated at the bottom, you just rip it away, and if it's not there, you're going like... There's a little box where it says spit here. (laughs) (laughs) And then they get, that's how they get your DNA... But there was, I always felt there was a case that Parliament had a right to vote on it. Yeah. But Parliament is saying, and even Gina Miller, to her credit, she's saying this probably won't stop the triggering of Article 50. It'll probably just delay it. Yeah. But I think it's likely, and I think uh, what Nigel Farage is uh, warning us about, he's got a point. It could very swiftly change from, let's vote on what type of leave it is. That could change very quickly to, let's vote on whether or not we should leave it all. Oh, this vote no, with the referendum was a mistake. Of course it is. That's how people frame it anyway. Here's old Lord Farage, OBE. What the court has ruled is that we must hand back the decision-making process to the very people that signed us up to the European project in the first place. Kind and whilst constitutionally this may be correct, because the referendum was legally advisory, I would think in, in, in terms of political morality, um, uh, Parliament should want the will of the people uh, to be carried out. But I, my, my feeling, I have to say, is I'm becoming increasingly worried. Um, I see MPs from all parties, you know, now saying, oh, well, actually, we should stay part of the single market. We should carry on with our daily financial contributions. Uh, and I think we could. Uh, we could be at the beginning with this ruling um, of a process where there is a deliberate, willful attempt by our political class to betray 17.4 million voters. Uh, I think it's the beginning of an attempt uh, by our political class to effectively water down uh, what the people of this country voted for. What's wrong with a vote in Parliament? Do you think Theresa May would be frightened that she could lose? Well, she would lose. She would lose. He did say something about blood in the streets, right, didn't he? No. Didn't he? I didn't see that. Shit. I might have got the wrong clip. <laughs> because he did. There was um, a quote. I mean, the thing about, like I said earlier, Gina Miller, the people are attacking her. Obviously, she's not white, so to speak, which means there's going to be a lot of like racist abuse online. If she's got a Twitter account or a Facebook account, she's probably getting a ton of grief right now. Which doesn't make sense because... No, she's done nothing wrong. At the heart of it, she's protecting herself and her and the money she manages. That's what I was going to say. That's she's, what it is. Yeah, she's saying... She's, get angry at that if you want to get angry at well, something. Well, she's pitching it as, oh, I did this because I wanted to defend democracy. 
this might lead to a constitutional crisis that destroys British democracy. So, I mean, if you're going to attack her, that's really your, that's your only line of attack. Yeah. I, but, but basically, look, leave her alone. It's not her fucking fault. I agree with you. I think she is basically protecting. She's probably got money tied up in the EU and she's kind of protecting it. But that's that Nazi said, gold she's looking after. Because what this court ruling technically means, right, in real terms, the judges did not specify what vote Parliament should actually take, like what the motion for debate should be. So again, it came across as like a badly planned opinion poll. What do you mean? You're saying the original Brexit, they're saying. No, they're saying uh, technically it was only advisory and because, and this is the real mm. crux of the issue here, crux of the issue, is um, you would technically be taking away British citizens' right to vote in European Parliament. And that taking the way... Taking away someone's rights can't be done unilaterally by the Prime Minister. I don't think it can even be done by the Queen. I I think it can only be the House of Commons have to vote on it, it has to pass the House of Commons, then the Lords vote on it, and then it it becomes like legislation. It's such a a slim, sneaky thing. Yeah, like I say, it's it's potential, there's potential there. It's open to the question being, should we leave it all? Should we just overturn the referendum? That could be the question Parliament votes on. Uh, Nigel Farage said, Theresa May Depends is Depends on how weak. it's framed, you're right. She's weak. She's only got a majority of 12. She's got a government that's pretty much failed to get its manifesto through, for the most part. I mean, She's back- had an MP resign. Yeah. No, it's, it's back to uh, the government, uh, governmental politics before Tony Blair. And he only the only reason he won anything is because he just razzle-dazzled. Yeah, but if you look at the the Conservative Party where it is now, it feels very much like how it was during uh, John Major. Feels a bit or of a the rerun, end of Thatcherism. Uh, not, uh, end of Thatcher. Just well, you had no major, direction at all. Major signed the Maastricht Treaty, which fucked off half of his party. Yeah, and I think a lot of Eurosceptics just kind of dropped, started dropping out of the Tory party after that. Uh, what do you think of the courts ruling? Are you worried at all? Nah, fuck it. I've got no control in my life. Why should I think I have control of this? Oh, the defeatist, fatalist position of I'm just going to stand back and watch. Let's say, hypothetically, if Parliament put forward a motion that said, fuck it, let's just overturn it. Yeah. Let's just say the public were wrong and let's trigger a constitutional crisis and just hope the public doesn't care and that the Queen doesn't care. Because in all seriousness, okay, I'm being a little bit melodramatic here, but technically this could go really badly to the point where the Queen might have to step in and dissolve Parliament. Back to having a monarchy. That's rule what, everything. But that's what we're talking about here. This is a big deal. Yeah, because it's, it's only by her divine, uh, her gift to the country that... Not gift, you know, like... There could technically... The b- d- divine benevolence that she's allowed the people to govern themselves. In a way. Well, yeah, that, you know, way, that, yeah. that's basically what a government is. It's by her blessing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But um, the reason why I say that is the knock-on effect. Say, hypothetically, the parliament does make the vote. Let's not let's overturn the referendum, mm-hmm. right? And then you have a constitutional crisis where you had a national referendum where the majority of the British public voted for something, and then parliament just came along. <laughs> just like, do you know what I mean? Like, you've got one act of direct democracy being overturned by right. parliamentary democracy. I don't. I don't think in his, uh, Britain's history we've ever really argued that out of what supersedes what, mm. which one is given priority. And so, what you might see though is the British public go ape shit. They might burn down the Houses of Parliament, like worst case scenario, <laughs> which means you'd have no government. Right? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? At least temporarily. Uh, at least we see it burn. Or the next general election. Yeah. Nobody votes. 
because it's like you know the Daily Mirror uh, was no excuse me the Express was saying dem- the democracy died on the day of this court ruling. Mm. No, if Britain, if the British Parliament overturns the referendum, that's the day British democracy died effectively for all intents for all intents and purposes. British democracy would be dead if the general election turnout. Yeah. Say it's like sub twenty percent. Say it's like seventeen percent election turnout. Wait, what was it last year? It's never really gone above like fifty. I don't think it's ever dropped below like twenty five. No, it's not that bad, but it's never gone higher than sixty or fifty. But it might. It might do. Yeah. And if it does, there's a big argument there that you know, you know is this government legitimate? There was like seventeen percent turnout, which means that a party that got a majority probably only got about like nine percent of the yeah. votes. <laughs> like, oh, that's why you have a coalition government. I don't know, I'm not big on those. And I don't think the Queen is either. But I'm starting to think that maybe this is all just an elaborate plan by Charles. Prince? Prince Charles. Okay. To get his mother to abdicate. Because if his mother steps in, takes control, devolves Parliament, she might see the pressure Mm. of it, step down, give it all to Charles. Yeah, once a new government forms, she might be like, okay, listen, I saved British democracy. Yeah. I'm stepping down now because I'm fucking old. Yeah. So he Charles is using the momentum and the hubris of his mother <laughs> to get yeah, to for him to come in eventually. Oh, he's a sneaky motherfucker, isn't he? Yeah. Plus, um, so we've established. Uh, well, we haven't established. We've we've, we've asserted, established nothing. <laughs> we've asserted that Parliament are untrustworthy bastards who want to stay in the EU. Mm. Most of the media wants to stay in the EU as well. There's a couple of big. Broad, uh, well, not even really broadsheets, tabloids, and they're not as influential as the BBC is by a long shot. Mm. BBC is definitely pro EU, so I think if politicians did overturn the referendum and uh, or like you know the the narrative going in in the press would be, oh, they're going to vote on what type of leave it is, and then overnight there's going to be a little bit of collusion between the press and yeah. politicians where they go, look, we're going to change the question, just fucking go with it, do you yeah. know? And I think that's Potentially that could happen. Sorry. So, so in answer to the question, what does the Brexit ruling mean? We're not sure. You know what? Write in. Tell us what you think on a postcard. Yeah, P.O. Box. <laughs> <laughs> Brexit bunker. Let's see if we have any luck answering our next question, Haimo. You calling me a victim? I'm not a victim. Oh, you're, you're part of that kind of uh, dignity culture that we used to have, eh? It's pronounced dignitas. Oh, excuse me. But yeah, what is victimhood culture? Let's see if we have any luck answering this one. So microaggressions, safe spaces, trigger warnings. Microaggressions for tiny faces. Cultural appropriation. This is all part of what? is starting to be called victimhood culture. Victimhood culture. Well, I, I, would, I would like to watch uh, an angry inner-city movie called Victimhood. Because do you know, Haimo, have you heard of the term, like, honour culture and dignity culture before? Yeah, I mean, honour culture is very much bootstraps, pull yourself up type, uh, uh, stiff upper lip. Am I right? A bit of stoicism. Yeah. But also, uh, if someone attacked you... Yeah. Even if just verbally, you would feel a pressure to defend your honour at all costs. So right? it's, it's not, you might sound, get into not sounding a, so great now. You might, because this is basically the kind of culture we had up until it's theorised up until about the 17th century. Yeah. But another aspect of honour culture would be that, say someone insulted you, you would physically punch them 
to defend your honor, pro- possibly, probably. Yeah. But you wouldn't go to the police or something like that. You wouldn't go to a higher authority because that would be viewed as dishonorable. Yeah, like you're weak for having someone else do the job you should have done. Yeah. And then okay. 17th, 18th century, around then, we transitioned from honor culture to dignity culture, whereby the difference uh, being an example, someone insults you, but instead of getting physically violent with them... A lot or of people going, are insulting me. Yeah, that happens a lot in your Finally, world. Yeah. But rather than getting physically violent with them or going yeah. to a higher authority, you would rise above it. You would understand that this is such a petty transgression and it's so insignificant that I'm just going to turn the other cheek and walk away. Boom, I like it. Jesus-esque, as very much like me. It's now being theorised... Without long hair. <laughs> it's now being theorised that we've transitioned from dignity culture into victimhood culture. We've already transitioned into it, or we are stepping into it. This is the thing. I This is kind of new to me as a British person, right? Yeah. And then as I was kind of doing my, I'm doing the quote fingers here, research, YouTube, Wikipedia. Whilst the porn was loading. You know, my uh, internet degree, <laughs> you know I mean? my internet university degree I'm employing here. Don't worry, uh, Brexiteers, I can see all of his certificates printed up on the wall. Yeah, I'm the king. <laughs> but I found uh, there was a guy, something Sykes, Professor something Sykes, right? He wrote a book about America's declining national character. And what he meant was people were becoming, they were playing the victims all the time over the slightest of transgressions. Okay, I mean, this, like, this was back in 1992. So it's been known in America for about 20, 25 years. Yeah, I mean, this sounds like very true to a caricature of it of uh of that litigious nature this professor sykes guy he uh he was saying this started in academia where most bad ideas tend to begin really to be honest and that was 25 maybe even 30 years ago so basically it's been around for some time in america and like we said earlier britain always copies america so it's come over here now so back in a honor or dignity culture Mm. to be seen as a victim was quite a shameful thing you definitely weren't eager for anyone to view you as a victim. You wanted to stand, you wanted to show the world that you could stand on your own two feet. Mm. You're going to... No, I mean, I'm just thinking, in in essence, if a victimhood personality says, bring, like, a, the actual authority of the land involved in it, or someone that can actually... Over small things. Yeah, but, but still, I mean, that stoicism is the reason why so, uh, people just die, because they don't go to the doctor. <laughs> like their blood pressure is going yeah, up. Or they, yeah, they've got a heart attack they and, they, and they decide not to. Oh, there's a heart moment. And they go like, it's fine. What, because like, they fu- didn't call the police over their neighbours playing their music too loud at 3am? No, like uh, because they don't you know that stoicism goes into everything. Like, But no. to my further, to go back to my point, yeah, we used to see victims as something to be pitied, to kind of like be, oh God, oh God, look at them. Yeah, but oh. but, but then again, we needed. We do need. Sorry, I'm getting off off topic. We do need to have a you know, to grow up and realize that a victim isn't a bad thing. We'd still see a rape victim as the person that's part of the shamed. equation of it. That she did something shameful. Yeah, that kind of like the the implication is yeah. So I'm. I'm, I'm gonna, right, I don't I'm, think we're wrong to change our attitude yeah, on that, which need, happened about. I would say like mid 20th century, late 20th yeah. century. Right? We needed to evolve, but, but it's gone too far. It's like a yeah, cancer. Exactly. It's grown. The pendulum. It's malignant. Yeah. The cliche, the pendulum has swung too far the other direction. Cool. I just wanted to get that out. We've swung the pendulum too far the other way. Yeah. Right? And what that means is we now view victims. We kind of imbue in them a certain amount of moral virtue by the, f- 
by virtue well, by virtue of the fact because they're victims yeah. we kind of raise them up you know how like there's always a hierarchy in society even if it's not written down in legislation mm. there's still you know there's different groups the haves the have nots what have you right and um we're raising victims up the totem pole yeah i mean like you can see that certainly like if you uh, get burgled or, or you see an accident or you're involved in an accident with the police, the first thing they do is say, do you want someone to talk to? Yes, you, you fucking idiot. I want to talk to you about this crime that happened. They mean like a counselor. Yeah, right. I don't need a fucking counselor. No, I want if, my if, shit back. Yeah, I want someone a, to investigate. Yeah. If I'm a witness or a burglar or something like that, I don't need a goddamn counselor. Talking about petty things like... Yeah, petty so, crimes. Yeah. Are, yeah, definitely. No, you don't need someone to talk to. Your opinions and your emotions don't mean shit in the real world, all right? Most of the time. This is... this is You're not jiving with victimhood culture here, Hyman, at all. You know what? You it's, are going against the new orthodoxy. But it's fine to wallow in it a little bit. You have to understand, for a society to move on, you have to give up a good chunk of yourself for it to continue on, because not everyone, nothing revolves around you. Yeah. But the world sees it. That's that's what victim of culture seems to come from. But do you see what I mean when I say we're pushing victims up a kind of imaginary totem pole of yeah no it, 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 we it, give them we give them the characteristics of they have moral virtue because they're victims mm. but not only that we kind of we're saying now and this is what came out of american academia in like late 80s early 90s is that victims of society have the most objective view overall of society and how society works and so they're like the experts on what's going wrong in society no that's like the argument put forward and we're kind of making them the arbiters of almost, not entirely, but to a certain extent, because we're imbuing them this moral virtue, they're kind of moral arbiters. No, see, I that's bullshit. What I'm saying, or... No, not your... Again, sorry, I keep doing that, don't I? I mean, I'm talking about the general point that you're actually explaining to me. Yeah, I don't agree with it. I don't think it's a good idea. If <laughs> yeah, you can't tell by the time of my voice. No, I, I totally do. I mean, like, I should have said that. You know what I mean when I say that's bullshit. I'm not talking about you. Because it forces people... I'll put it a much polite way if I disagree with you. But it forces people, rather than the uh, the old kind of way of there are the haves and the have-nots, right? Because there is inequality, but it's not as bad as it used to be. But we'll talk about that in a second. You can't but get away from that. It forces everyone to view everybody else in society as either an oppressed person or an oppressor. Someone's either a victim or they're a perpetrator. Mm. You only fall into two types of categories. Can a can a perpetrator become a victim? Or, or, or No, I would say no. So once you're marked as a perpetrator, it's almost like you you get your comeuppance now if you then become a victim and then you're not allowed the victimhood status. Here's the perfect real-world example of what you're talking okay, about. The cool. banker, the big hedge fund manager, he loses everything and becomes homeless. No one gives a shit about him. Even he's like, no one really cares about homeless people, but he's at the very bottom of the list of the homeless yeah. people we care about because he used to have it all. Which is So bullshit. I would say, no, you can't go from privileged oppressor to underprivileged victim. Mm. I don't think it's technically possible. But another important factor of victimhood culture, as we said earlier about how someone in an honor culture, if you insult them, they'll punch you. Someone in a dignity culture, you insult them, they'll turn the other cheek. Someone in a victimhood culture, you insult them, what they would react in a kind of shock horror, clutching their poles. Oh my God, can you believe what's happening to me? They'd start like posting on Facebook and what you they're know, doing is they're getting public support. Question, Tom, do you think 
everything should be equal. Do you think you should no. be working towards that? No. Because uh, tell me you haven't had a conversation Everything where is equal. Everything should be utopian. Everything should be equal. Everything should be... Well... That's why... That word you just used there, utopia, that's what I think this is part of. Yeah. I think this is a really pure old childlike attempt at utopianism where you're saying, if we get rid of everything that offends us and emotionally upsets us and we play the victim enough eventually there'll be nothing that left that can victimise us, and that means we're in utopia. You know what it is? We're creating boys and bubbles. Boys and bubbles, the bubble boys. Yeah, I was going to say a boy in a bubble, but I said boys and bubbles. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, though. The guy, the boy who couldn't, yeah, he, he had to live inside from, of a bubble. Yes, no, he, no, he's safe from everything. Mm. But we're obviously not part of a victimhood culture. We don't, we're not agreeing with these ideas. But we're not seeing eye to eye with them. We're part of that dignity culture yeah, still. Yeah, we're... we're, we're <sighs> We're certainly not the first set. Punch and back. I mean, that's seen as Neanderthal backward thinking. It's really easy in a victimhood culture to drive wedges between groups of people who actually previously liked each other, coexisted completely peacefully. Whereas in a dignity culture, there would be a natural resistance to that. And so I think victimhood culture is susceptible to people who are a little bit, not entirely morally bankrupt, but lacking in morals, say, who are not above being manipulative. Victimhood culture is susceptible to that kind of person coming along, driving in these wedges because it it lifts them up, playing the victim. Mm. And they don't give a shit what happens to the rest of this community that they're driving these wedges into. They don't care. You know what it reminds me of? It's, you've got the idea of like a, a stoic a stoic person is like they're an island in and of themselves. No one can get on. They'll never leave. And you've got the victimhood culture, which is, I'm on an island by myself, but as long as you've got a passport, you can come on to my island. And the more people I have on me, the more popular my island is. But it's my island. And a dignity culture is like a bunch of archipelagos connected by, uh, like, bridges. I think it's part of human nature that there's always going to be a conflict where someone feels they're being hard done by. I don't think there's anything new I, mean, I don't I, think whatever culture, society you build, you're ever going to 100% eliminate that. We've never got rid of that God thought where something bigger than us is controlling things. That mm. is a human. That is hardwired into our brains. I don't know about that. I don't know if it's hardwired. Okay. Not hardwired, but it's certainly been repeated thousands and thousands of generations that it's hard. It's like a learnt, learnt. Yeah. I don't learn, think it's learn aspect, and that's what victimhood culture is saying. Something out of my control is controlling me. I don't think it's any coincidence that this victimhood culture was born out of like middle class American universities, where they're kind of they're pretty much the most privileged people on earth. But I think they feel there's something precarious there, where they might be on the verge of losing it. Where like the I guess. the constant gro- uh, wealth growth might not carry on forever. There might be a limit to everything. And I think they're trying to hoard up everything that they can, the middle classes. They want all of the wealth. They want all of the reverence and the praise, which, you, like you say, used to go to a god, but doesn't go to a god anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I think you've gone to something in terms of um, we still look to higher powers, but we've humanized them now. Mm. And we think it's the, the higher power is the state. And I, th- I think that's what worries me, worries me most about victimhood culture. There's a kind of impetus there to be dependent on the state, because they're the higher authority that people in a victimhood culture will turn to over the smallest of transgressions. True, but they're also the type of people, they're like a petulant child going like, leave me to be what I want until I need you. Yeah, and I, don't like, I won't like... pay my taxes, but why are these roads so fucked? I've got a natural aversion to paternalistic government. Yeah. Just the very notion of it. 
Speaking of trying to raise one's own status in the tower block of life through rather shallow means, it's time to talk about high-rise. Ever wanted something more? Ever thought there could be a better way to live free from the shackles of the old, tired world? This development is the culmination of a lifetime's work by esteemed architect, Anthony Royal. The high-rise has 40 floors of luxury apartments filled with every modern convenience. On site, we have a fully stocked supermarket, gym facilities, swimming pool, spa, school. There is almost no reason to leave. So, High Rise, directed by Ben Wheatley, starring Tom Hiddleston, Sienna Miller and Jeremy Irons. High Rise is the long-awaited film adaptation of J.G. Ballard's 1975 dystopian novel called High Rise, famously described as unfilmable. But High Rise takes place circa mid-70s. I think it says 1975. Yeah, it's like early 70s, mid-70s, yeah. And it's all, all the entire film takes place in this high rise tower block. This brutal looking building where concrete is the new technology. It's very 70s in that it is just a concrete building. Yeah. And it's kind of weird that in a film made in 2016, we're doing these CGI concrete buildings as opposed to the steel and glass. Someone probably had to come up with completely new code to do a concrete building. (laughs) The first thing you notice straight away is it's uh, for the first like 20 floors, it's just a rectangular block standard 70s 60s 70s kind of mm. utility design maximize efficiency but then the floors tear off they're kind of what would you call they jut out each floor juts out a little further and it, it looks, looks precarious it looks like you just look at it and straight away you think your brain thinks something something's wrong we're like that side of the building is going to tip over it looks like I mean? it looks like a, a quiff on a hair just it <laughs> popping out <laughs> but it, straight away there's something askew yeah and this is a very surreal film. And you have that feeling the entire film. You're kind of uncomfortable because everything's a bit askew. There's no comfortability there in that sense mm. with High Rise. Everything is permanently askew. You're constantly feeling a little bit uncomfortable. And for the first 20 minutes, I thought, yeah, I'm, you know what? I'm loving this. I'm going to love this film. Mm. But by the end, I have to say I was a little bit indifferent to it all. But that's the thing, like, that's the point. That's what these blocks and this design of the building, the point they were trying to make. This is human society trying to put it into shape. And you can't, and you can't do that. You have to have that freedom. You've got to have a little bit of chaos. It's why, like, the, the whole story is that everything descends into madness. Everyone is fine with it because their society, society in this, in the block has treated everything as normal again. Everything is normal, no matter how crazy it is. So Tom Hiddleston yeah. plays a doctor called Dr. Lang, which I've, I've got to believe is like a reference to R.D. Lang. I've not read the novel, I'll uh, admit at this point. And I get, this, I get the feeling this is the kind of film where reading the novel will definitely help you appreciate. It won't necessarily help you understand what's going on, but you'll probably appreciate it more in that sense of, oh, it was such a faithful adaptation from mm. the text it was literally the text on screen you know people are gonna like it in that sense but tom hiddleston's this doctor moves into the high rise so in his mind he's moving up in the world in one sense but in another sense he's trying to escape everything and everyone 
like it, when he moves into the building he just wants complete isolation just wants to be left alone really mm. but not in an aggressive sense he's a passive kind of person like he's very everyone everyone in the film gets to influence him in some way but he doesn't change he still stays passive virtually throughout even when he does something he's he's literally shoved into next mm. scenes he, there's this guy cuz Jeremy Irons is the architect who built these five high rise tower blocks right yeah and his idea is it's the palm of a hand like there's a bit of there's like a water feature in the middle yeah. and that's the palm and the towers are the five fingers and uh, he's he's he begun this project believing he had the the ability to change the world for the better and that these towers would stand as like a testament to how he improved the world that's very much true of the policy that came in the 60s and 70s when they originally built these buildings what were they sold as they were sold as like aspirational yeah they? they were like little country uh you you could have your own village your own community without having to leave your tower block the, or your I little area the, yeah and the imagery was that you're you're reaching up into the skies yeah so it's like you're going up in the world but hiddleston like i say he's I think he starts the film saying, I just want anonymity. I don't want anyone to know who I am. Mm. And it's kind of like he's gone into, I think the JG Ballard, I'm guessing what he was, supposedly he was talking about gated communities and yeah, people who go into gated communities, they don't want community. They just want their own little space. But I mean, like, it's very much Hiddleston plays the character that is not the hero. He's just the protagonist. He's almost like our excuse of, to get in, get into it, like like a Mad Max. Mad Max isn't the hero of the story. Oh, he finish. is no, he is just the protagonist. He is our way into it. It's not well, really about him. The story, yeah. no, yeah, you're right. But oh, I was just going to finish with thing about. He's in some cases literally shoved into the next scene. Mm. Jeremy Irons, the big architect, he has a henchman. And the henchman will just come up to Tom Hiddleston. And Hiddleston's always, there's like a kind of running gag. This film had a lot of good humour to it. Very dark humour, I would say. Yeah. Quite dark comedy. I mean, but I, I, I could... Every time I, yeah. Hiddleston's shoved into a new scene, he's always got something in his hand. And the henchman, his line to him is always, you're not going to need that. And then he shoves him. <laughs> and he's like, he's literally shoving him into the next scene. So uh, Jeremy Irons, like you say, Tom Hiddleston, like he's passive. Everything mm. is enacted upon him. And so Jeremy Irons just kind of brings him in. And you kind of think... Oh, he's taking him un- under his wing in a way that Jeremy Irons sees something in Tom Hiddleston mm. that he's not quite like everybody else in the building, maybe. Because, by the way, there is that kind of community atmosphere where everybody knows everybody else. Mm. And it's the case where the people on the upper floors who are slightly richer than the people on the flo- floor below them, but they I, hate them. They but, hate the lower floors and the lower floors hate the upper floors. But I saw the Jeremy Irons, not, as you said, not taking him under his wing, but more like, I need you to believe this lie. And you're so new here. Uh, I need. I, I. I need to start jumpstart your belief in this because no For one you, else does. Yeah, no, because you need to fit in with everyone else believing it. Ah, right. I see what you mean. Right. I. I. I got the impression that we used to. Um. We used to have people who were idealistic mm. and would go out and try to change the world. Whereas now we have people who are idealistic but feel powerless and they just sit back and watch it happen. Yeah. And that's why I, I got the feeling that that's what the other residents in the tower were. And I think Tom Hiddleston at the beginning was a bit resistant to it. But probably, I'd say, maybe like 25 minutes in, he's just he just goes along with the flow. But you say he's he's one protagonist. I think there was a second protagonist, technically. Yeah, Wilder. You, oh, you, the, uh, the, the lower, BBC journalist. Yeah, uh, he's on a lower floor. And like I said, they're not working class. You know, he's a, he no, works at the BBC it, it, in the 70s. He must be middle class. No, it's a comment on uh, the middle class. It's, that's all it is. Mm. 
But I think I saw like a review where someone was like, they were talking about working class, middle class, like all dynamic. And it's like, no, no it's, it's confined it's, to middle class. It's a yeah. kind of microcosm. It's, it's what the 60s was about. It was saying there is no lower class. The ha- people can be working class. But they're still well, can, really can be workers. We're all professionals. Yeah, now. see, that's why I think it's quite true because that's all like late uh, late nineties, early two thousand politics was about middle classes. Yeah, yeah, completely. There is no lower class. There is no upper class. We can all be middle class. Middle class for the rich because they can have the freedom to do what they want and get lost in without the uh, with the anonymity. And the lower class can move up to middle class and then be re- seen as respectable. Mm. And that's what I think this but, movie was like you say, tapped a, into. Like you say, it's a bit of a facade. Yeah. The upper middle class look down their noses to the lower middle class. Yeah, you just create more and more factions within it. Which floor are you? Uh, 25. We're down in the bottom in all sorts of shadows. Most families are. We pay the same charges as the top floors. We want our fair share of the power. Things would be better if we could afford to move to a higher floor. If you lower people, overload the system, there'll be power cuts. How's the high life? Prone to fits of mania, narcissism, and power failure. Mm. You built all this. I put all my energies into this time. Is that a horse? Probably. On the 40th floor. Tonally, the tone of the film. Yeah. Very depressing. Now, I'm, I'm okay with that. I mean, right off the bat, the building is decaying straight away. It's not it's not subtle in the way of the film is letting you know. I mean, the first thing you see, spoilers, but not really spoilers because it's the first thing you see in the film, is that Tom Hiddleston is like he's picking up like body parts and things like that. Do you know what I mean? Like it the the tower the, the civilization inside of the tower, completely external of civilization yeah. around it, has completely collapsed. I mean, that's, and everyone's just fucking killing each other. Yeah, it, it's a descent into socially agreed madness. Did you get any kind of happy feeling from the film at all? So I smiled all the way through it, but I wouldn't say happy. Like I said, it's funny. The first ten minutes are really funny. It clicked with me on in so many ways, but I couldn't quite define why it clicked with me. Um, there's it's, not a lot in the film that is highly memorable in terms of like iconic shots with the exception of the guy who throws himself off the 39th floor and hits the car bonnet and it's super slow motion him hitting the car bonnet see i i think it's it's made up of some brilliant scenes like you've got some wonderful shots down the corridors where it's just chaos yeah where it's just At chaos one point, there's, or, like, there's or a goat just... in a trolley and like <laughs> shit like that yeah or even just like there's a party going on, like a normal party and the camera just slips into like a small uh one of the rooms and it's just you know, the kid just sitting there lost in his own world type thing. And you, you just, but what did you make of like the kind of just the non-stop decadence of just there's just constant fucking drug taking? It was a little, the film was a little bit on it erred on the side of exploitation for me. Not in the sense of there was tons of tits and pubic hair everywhere, but there was tons of fucking going on. There was like I think there might have been two rape scenes. It was a very like I saw one review that described it as like a highly misogynistic movie, and I can kind of see where they're coming from because only it, the male characters matter at all in the film. No, no. See, I, I don't, I don't agree. I mean, like just because the the women don't play major roles, no half the women don't play major roles doesn't mean they don't matter. They're still, like, the the impetus behind half the male characters doing something. 
They're kind of, yeah, but I mean, they're a bit like Tom Hiddleston where they don't really have any real ambitions or desires of their own. They're just kind of passive and things just happen to them. Mm. Whereas then, the only two guys who have any sort of motivation, there was the second protagonist that we briefly touched on earlier, uh, Wilder. But he's, he's pure... Um, By the end of the film, he's pure rage. I was going to say he's pure uh, id. Okay, you're going with the Freudian thing where um yeah, this thing, i don't know freudian theory well enough to actually uh but i think okay. i'm pretty sure it was I, 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 people no, wait, were saying on, tom hiddleston is the ego no sorry excuse me tom hiddleston is the id wilder is the ego irons is the super ego no no okay maybe i got that the wrong yeah, way no, you're right hiddleston is the id wilder is the ego uh no uh no uh so, someone else is the ego and uh wilder is the super ego oh well then jeremy irons is the ego then maybe but I mean, I'm thinking as the architect of the whole thing, like the building, you feel like when you're watching the film, the building is like this kind of living organism where it's almost like symbiotic. No, I got it wrong. Sorry. Wilder's wife. Uh, Wilder's wife is the ego. Hiddleston is the id. The pregnant woman. No, not the... Oh, uh, what's the, the woman, woman he wanted to fuck? Sienna yeah. Miller's character. Sienna Miller, yeah. Yeah. Is the ego. And Wilder is a super ego. Is her name ego. Cheryl or Charlotte? Something like that. Yeah, because she is making comments, moving around, saying what she wants. And she's the socialite who knows everybody really well yeah. and is in everyone's good books and everyone kind of looks up to her in a certain respect. Mm. And Hiddleston is the uh, id because he can make a comment but then continues within society that you can still let, uh, continue on without the social norms. And Wilder is a superego because he's pure animal urges. He must document yeah, he's it. Yeah, pure base instincts. He just wants to bang anything that's hot. Bang anything, or like he reverts back to, I was a reporter, now I now I have to document it. But I will document it in the most gruesome, base way. But, you know... I mean, at one point in the film, you're kind of sympathetic to Wilder. Oh, totally. Because he has a motivation. He wants to see the top. Mm. He wants to see the architect. Because to him, it's just a mythical character who he's starting to hate more and more. Hmm. And uh, at one point, it's kind of random how he ends up with a gun. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like like I say, it's a very surreal film. And in terms of plot progression, sometimes it, it goes from quite fast to really slow. It kind of chops oh, and changes yeah, a bit. Yeah, basically in the second act, it jumps really, really quickly. Yeah, there's a but lot I of think montages. You, yeah, and, but I think you need that to get into the madness of the third act. You, well, you know what? You need to ram raid it into it. There was no point in the film where you're shown that life ever actually worked in the building. It like by the time Hiddleston arrives, the signs of the cracks are there. Yeah. Like there's images of like rotten the fruit. The bureaucracy like in that. it as well is the lifts are like the lights are flickering, they're starting yeah. to not work properly. There is a sort of undertone, a kind yeah. of sub theme that runs throughout where yeah. it's kind of like an anti capitalist thing where this tower block because there are points in the film where you're like, everything is decaying so much around them. Where is the state? Where are the police? And it doesn't occur here. And the building is like its own private entity almost thing, entirely. It's this, this isn't like a factual-based movie. This isn't no. a... Yeah. This is a kind of a magical realism that you have to give up. It's like watching a monster movie. But you give up certain understandings of the physics of the world. And that's what you have to do with this movie. Well, it's not the physics. It's the culture and no, the civilization. You, yeah, but you know the, what I mean? Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. But to me, that's what adds to that uncomfortable feeling that you kind of get throughout the film. Mm. And you never really... Because um... you partially agree with it, but you also vehemently, in your soul, disagree with it. What are you doing? What are you doing in there? Teething problems. Building's still settling. 
Does this seem odd that a man can fall from the 39th floor and not one police car turn up? Where's the sirens? What have you got there? A kaleidoscope. What can you see through that thing? The future. You mentioned earlier an act two. I want to dispute this a little bit. I found it quite difficult to interpret the film in that way. Like I go, I go into films with the understanding of there's going, there are basic story elements. Yeah. There are basic story structures. First act, second act, third act, second act is when you're at your lowest point, blah, blah, blah. Genero comes rallies to win in the third. This didn't follow that formula at all. I don't think there was no real first act, no second act, no third act. I mean, I don't, and I'm not just saying because there wasn't a happy ending where no, every but, loose knot got tied. I'm, that's not why I'm saying that. I'm just saying when you're watching the film, there is a point, I'd say maybe about an hour and 15 minutes in, where you're kind of just like, ah, this is dragging a little bit. I kind of no, just want but, some sort of plot progression here, something to happen. But but there there is an act system. Like You can almost see like when the guy ju- uh, jumped out of the building, that was the end of the first act. This is showing to the world or us, the audience, that the physics of our world don't quite work. And I say physics, the the, the normal clock-ticking um, mechanization of our world aren't the same as in this world, mm. because they can get away with it. It's moved on. Everyone just ignores it. It's hedonism. It. They just do whatever yeah. they want. All right. That's where we are actually allowed uh, allowed to understand it. I mean, I guess the point I'm trying to get at is there isn't a typical plot progression. No, it's not typical, but that's, that's not how Ben Wheatley makes films you look at his early movies field in england the killer sightseers maybe because what i've read i haven't read the novel this is based on obviously yeah. but what i've read is it is a kind of just it's almost like just chronicling the decline of the building yeah there's no like like we say there's no real beginning middle end it's just you start at a certain point where the building is in decline and then it's just total collapse by the end and it's just full-on anarchy yeah Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for this episode of the Tom, Dick and Hyman show. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, why do you stick with us? I mean, we're no good to you. There's potential here, I think. There's potential we <laughs> might one day be good at this. Ladies and gentlemen, defend your dignity and your honour as best as you can. Otherwise, we're going to be... Someone else will take it. <laughs> otherwise, we're going to be completely dependent on what will most likely be a totalitarian state. That is the Tom, Dick and Hyman show. Goodbye. The harbingers of doom. Goodbye. <laughs>